Hi, guys. Thanks for keeping on listening. We are away on parental leave right now. Yes, but we still wanted to make sure that you guys had content to listen to while we were away. So here is one of our oldies but goodies. Check out the website for some updated notes on this particular episode since our recording. Hope you enjoy, and we'll see you when we're back. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us a very special guest. Um, We have with us Dr. Andre Delinko, who is a second-year reproductive endocrinology and infertility fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Andre. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Andre, it's great to see you all the way from the West Coast. You too, Nick. Andre was a co-resident with Faye and I, and I'm so excited that you're going to reteach us about hysteroscopy today. So what are our learning objectives? So the learning objectives for today are really to understand what hysteroscopy is, well, where does it come from, how does it work, so we'll talk about patient setup, the instruments that we're going to use, uh, and a little bit about the different fluids. Uh, the rest of uh, hysteroscopy we're going to leave for a future episode. Awesome. So let's start off with just what is hysteroscopy, Andre? Because Nick and I don't do this anymore as MFMs. Hysteroscopy um, comes from the two ancient Greek words, hystera and skopeo, so to see the womb. And that's really what we're doing here. We're going to be using a telescope or a camera to be looking inside the uterine cavity. This is actually quite an old technique uh, that was first developed way back when, the mid-19th century, uh, when a guy named Pantaleone first performed hysteroscopy on a 60-year-old woman to diagnose an endometrial polyp and treat it with silver nitrate. He used a cystoscope that was uh, first developed by a French guy uh, that used a bunch of mirrors and a light source, that light source being a candle. As you can imagine, that uh, was quite dangerous, hot for the patient, as well as Uh, you had to be looking very closely through the uh, objective lens. But over the past century, really, uh, hysteroscopy has really taken off. Um, In the early 20th century, uh, they first used carbon dioxide as a distension medium. Uh, They really developed different types of hysteroscopes uh, in the early 1920s. And then fixed optic systems and fluid delivery systems came in the 1930s. The second half of the 20th century, uh, we got fiber optic cables uh, that were first added to the hysteroscope in 1965, uh, and operative hysteroscopy and different distension medias really took off in the 1970s. Finally, video endoscopy uh, came up in the 1980s, uh, and the very well-known Batoki office hysteroscope came about in the mid-90s. Since then, we've had development of resectoscopes and different energy devices, as well as lots of other hysteroscopic instruments uh, as we enter the 21st century, which is where we are today. Thanks for that overview. That's really interesting. Um, Terrifying to think that candlelight once was the source of light for anything in medicine, but (laughs) I guess, thank God we're in the 21st century. Yeah, Um, thank you. (laughs) So I guess, Andre, to go from here and into the modern era, um, let's start talking about exactly how hysteroscopy works or how we get things started. I guess we need a patient really to start. 
patients are really this uh, truly spans the reproductive and post-reproductive lifespan. Uh, you can have patients who are very early after menarche that you may have to do something like this for some uterine anomalies. And you may very well be doing this on postmenopausal women who have postmenopausal bleeding. There are truly very few uh, contraindications uh, to hysteroscopy. Uh, the big ones are pregnancy. I think that's a pretty obvious one. Any active infections, so cervicitis or active PID, uh, just because of the risk of further worsening those con conditions. And then really any comorbidities that may be exacerbated by significant intravascular volume expansion, uh, you really have to think carefully about whether or not those patients are good candidates. In terms of just thinking about, you know, how to do a hysteroscopy, right? Walk us a little bit through what happens when the patient gets into the OR. So how do we position them? You know, um, what are we doing so that they can get ready to actually have this procedure? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Faye. So first and foremost, we want to think about when we're doing uh, this procedure. For postmenopausal women, it doesn't particularly matter. You can do it at any time because they don't cycle. For reproductive-aged women, it actually really matters. The best way to look at the uterine cavity is during the pro proliferative phase. So this is really during cycles day 5 through 12, because you don't want them to be bleeding anymore, because that will obstruct your view. So you don't want them to be on their periods. Uh, but you also don't want to be in a secretory phase, so after ovulation, for two reasons. One is there's an increased risk of pregnancy around that time. And two, the secretory endometrium can really uh, look like polypoid endometrium at times. Uh, so the best time to look at it is really uh, in that mid-proliferative to end of the proliferative phase. In terms of positioning the patient, um, this is very standard GYN procedure. So we're uh, primarily going to be in the dorsal lithotomy position. Importantly, uh, we sometimes will use a little bit of Trendelenburg on these patients, but you really want to avoid steep Trendelenburg because of a risk of uh, air embolism. And we'll go into that in a future lecture when we talk about uh, some complications of this. As we think about once the patient is positioned, we then talk about kind of like, do we prep the patient? Do we not prep the patient? I think in, as most GYN procedures, you're going to use your standard vaginal prep with either 4% chlorhexidine gluconate soap or providone iodine. Antibiotics, really not indicated for this procedure at all. Um, in the past, I think people thought about people who have high risk of cardiac uh, complications or something like that needing antibiotics, but it's no longer indicated either. Lastly, we want to talk about, like, from the patient perspective, is whether or not they need any sort of anesthesia. And for this procedure, it really ranges. Um, one of the biggest things that you can do with this procedure is you can actually do this in the office. And a lot of times for those patients, you don't use any anesthesia at all, or you can have them premedicate with some NSAIDs, or you can go all the way to general endotracheal anesthesia if patients have uh, other risk factors, and pretty much anywhere in between. Right. Let's talk about our hard equipment next, things that you'll need on your cart in the OR um, or in the office if you're doing in-office hysteroscopy, and maybe break down to, I remember in residency, sort of our Olympics of like blindfolded putting a hysteroscope together, um, but I'm not sure I actually memorized or learned the names of all those pieces that I was trying to put together. So it might be nice to go over some of that. I think that's a great idea, Nick. So first and foremost, this is a vaginal procedure, so you're going to need your vaginal instrument set. Uh, that includes speculums, retractors, uh, something to be able to visualize the cervix, particularly if you're doing this in the operating room. In the office, there's a procedure called vaginoscopy, where you can really avoid speculums and retractors and tenaculums and just guide the hysteroscope in through the vagina into the cervix. 
you will also use uh, dilators very often, particularly for some of the larger diameter scopes. And if you're going to be using any sort of um, DNC, you're going to need your curatage tools and some other basic uh, polyp forceps, etc. From the hysteroscope itself, so you know, we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but you need the hysteroscope and everything that kind of goes along with it. You'll need a distension media uh, and then a fluid management system, as well as an electrosurgical unit if you're using uh, electrosurgery uh, tools. From the hysteroscope itself, as you very well remember from that blindfolded procedure uh, during our simulation session, uh, first and foremost, you have the scope itself. And the scope has an eyepiece. In the past, that's what the surgeon would physically look through to be able to see inside the uterus. Nowadays, a camera head uh, attaches to this and then feeds the image over to a video monitor. You also have the barrel of the hysteroscope and then the objective lens at the very tip, uh, which will range from 0 to 70 degrees, although for hysteroscopy, where most often we'll use either a 0-degree scope or a 30-degree scope. In addition to the scope or the telescope itself, you'll have an inner sheath that has inflow, you'll have an outer sheath that has outflow for particularly the operative scopes, um, and then you'll have your light source. Most commonly these days is xenon or LED. Uh, in the past, other light sources have been used, uh, although we're way beyond candles at this point. And then I mentioned the camera head and the video monitor already. As we think about the different types of hysteroscopes that are out there, you can have everything from flexible to rigid scopes, and it really depends on whether or not you're going to be just taking a look or you're going to look and treat. Uh, and then you're getting into really the operative scopes. And the operative scopes, there's also a wide variety of them out there. Um, I think the most common ones that we think about is the rigid operative scope, which is the Bitoki. Uh, that is the most common one uh, that's used out there. And then there's also uh, scopes that are specifically to be used with hysteroscopic tissue removal systems. Well, an example of that is the Meyerscher and the Meyerscher scope. As well, and then the resectoscopes, and there's different brands of those on the market. You know, one thing that I was kind of always confused about, Andre, was like the different types of distension media that you could use. And I was always just like, oh, we'll use saline. And I, but you know, like we've learned about all those other types of distension media, like mannitol and all of those other things. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, like why we use certain types of distension media and what's good for what, for example? I think that's a very good question, Faye. The most common one, as you said, is normal saline these days, but that wasn't always the case. Historically, uh, the first distension media, as I think I mentioned in the very beginning, was CO2, it was gas. Um, and it's easy to see with that, although has some complications, specifically gas embolisms, uh, that it's no longer used as often. Beyond that, we went to uh, what we call either high-viscosity or low-viscosity fluids. So the high-viscosity is 32% dextran or Hyscon uh, solution. This is also has really come out of favor because of pretty significant complications with it at very low fluid deficits, and we'll talk about fluid deficits in a minute. Uh, so the most common distension media that we use these days are low-viscosity fluids. And we can break these down into electrolyte-rich uh, media or electrolyte-poor media. Uh, they're pretty self-explanatory. The electrolyte-rich is primarily saline, although you could use something like lactated ringers as well. And the electrolyte-poor media are uh, things like the 5% mannitol that you mentioned. There's 3% sorbitol or 1.5% glycine. Real reasons for using one versus the other is whether or not you're going to be using an energy source, and specifically monopolar energy. You cannot use 
uh, in an electrolyte-rich media because it will conduct the electricity and completely disperse all your energy. So it won't be effective. Uh, so in the past, when there were only monopolar instruments available as our energy source, particularly for the resectoscope, you had to use something like mannitol or sorbitol or the glycine to be able to perform those surgeries. For anything that's mechanical, you can use any type of media, uh, but normal saline has some pretty significant advantages uh, that we'll talk about in a minute uh, over the electrolyte-poor media. And with the advance of bipolar uh, energy sources for the bipolar resectoscope, uh, you can also use those in saline. Yeah, I think you were starting to hint there, Andre, at exactly that fluid deficit you were talking about earlier and what exactly that means. Um, I know we would always ask about it doing a hysteroscopic case, but why is it important? That's a great question, Nick. And I think this is one of the most important parts about hysteroscopy is the fluid deficit. What that is is whenever you're putting fluid into a cavity, it has to go somewhere. I think the most common thing that we think about is that it'll just leak back out of the cervix. Uh, there's things that we do to try to prevent that. Uh, I think a couple of the things that I mentioned already, there's an outflow tract on your hysteroscope uh, that helps capture that media. And then don't overdilate as well. So uh, the different scopes that we talked about, I didn't really go into this in detail, but have different diameters. So you really want to know the diameter of the scope that you're using to know how far to dilate your cervix. So you don't want fluid leaking out, but the other place that it really goes is it gets absorbed uh, into the uterine walls and into the myometrium. In a diagnostic scope, you're really not going to have much of this because you haven't disrupted the endometrial layer or the myometrial layer. But once you start doing any sort of surgery, you're taking out polyps uh, that have a feeding vessel, or um, more importantly, you're starting to take out big fibroids or septums that have vasculature going through them. You're giving the fluid that you're putting into the uterine cavity direct access to the sinuses and the vessels. And if the intrauterine pressure is greater than the pressure in those vessels, you're going to have intravasation of this fluid. As you can imagine, just like we don't want to flood patients when we're giving them IV fluids, you can have the same situation happen with hysteroscopy and the fluid deficit uh, that we're seeing. The reasons that that is important is normal saline perspective, you can give a healthy reproductive aged woman a good amount of fluid and she'll uh, be able to compensate for it and over time she'll just pay it out. As you start thinking about the electrolyte-poor media, though, you really start to worry about hyponatremia in particular and the complications of that. Uh, so for different types of media that you use, you have different cutoffs for what your maximum fluid deficit should be. For high, that high viscosity media that I mentioned earlier, that maximum deficit is 500 cc's which isn't a lot. And for elderly patients, it was actually 300 cc's uh, just because of significant complications from it. As you start looking at the electrolyte-poor media, the mannitol, the sorbitol, the glycine, uh, the standard accepted highest limit is about a liter. Once you start getting above that, uh, the reason that they chose that is one liter deficit will drop your sodium by about 10 uh, points, so 10 millimoles per liter. As you're thinking about that in a young, healthy woman, it may not be as big of a problem, but once you start getting into older patients, you may have trouble with that. Complications from uh, hyponatremia, uh, as you can imagine, are cerebral edema uh, and all the complications associated with that, including death. Yeah. So definitely want to avoid that. As we go into the electrolyte-rich media, the saline, 
your deficit is much higher. Uh, the standard accepted practice is about two and a half liters. And really, you're not going to be worrying as much about hyponatremia in that case, uh, as saline is pretty isotonic uh, with blood. But you're going to start thinking about fluid overload. So pulmonary edema, uh, congestive heart failure, et cetera. In terms of like managing your fluid, right? Like this was one of those things I feel like, you know, our OR techs was kind of constantly like hounding us about, like they would get really mad at us if that butt drape was not underneath the patient well. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how we can actually make sure that we're accurately measuring our fluid deficit? Yes, there's lots of different systems available. The most simple one is you just have a bag of saline hanging on an IV pole. It should be above the level of the uterus so that you actually get some distension. You'll capture whatever fluid is coming out uh, through the cervix into a butt drape, uh, as you had mentioned. You can then also put a pressure bag on if you need a little bit more distension, uh, but you start not knowing exactly how much pressure you're truly applying, uh, and you have to be a little bit more careful about not having the pressure higher than your mean arterial pressure, which is really when you start getting increasing fluid deficits. Tools out there now come with automated systems uh, that on which you can set fluid deficits for automatic calculation, as well as uterine pressure settings. Uh, these really, you're going to want to make sure that the butt drape has a suction attached to it that brings the fluid back to um, the fluid management system machine. Uh, otherwise, you could just hook it up to a wall suction. And really, you should have the circulator or somebody in the room who is responsible for con keeping a close eye on the fluid uh, every 5-10 minutes or so and making sure that uh, you don't have a sudden increase uh, in your fluid deficit that could be indicative of some complications during your surgery. All right. Well, Thank you, Andre, for kind of this intro to hysteroscopy, really a refresher for Faye and I not having touched this in a while. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you again to get even more info about hysteroscopy, like talking about electrosurgery and then troubleshooting this. Absolutely. And we'll also talk about some of the different procedures that we actually use this for, like what are the actual indications for this? I think we very briefly mentioned the general patients, but what are the actual procedures that we can do with this? Thank you so much, Andre, again, for coming on to the show. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. You can also find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Give us some love. We may give you a shout out on the show or some swag. We have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episode available on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a correction for this show or any of our other shows or have a suggestion, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>